Today's scripture is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 till 37. Please stand for the reading of God's word. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to, the, to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit the internal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You answered it correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half, half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and banded his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of the, these three do you think as a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. It's good to see you. Good to be back with you. Happy New Year. Before we jump into the text this morning, I wanted to give you an update because for four or five weeks in a row in December, I got up here and held before you this end of year campaign, this vision of raising $150,000 above and beyond uh, our regular offering to help drive a number of mission initiatives forward. And today I have the privilege of telling you that we met our goal. We raised $150,000. And we didn't just raise $150,000. Uh, our general offering was actually $100,000 over and beyond what our budget is. So really in December, we raised 
a quarter of a million dollars. We can clap. If we can't clap for that, I don't, I don't know what we can clap for. Um, but I just wanted to tell you, thank you for your generosity. It means the world. It's, it's incredibly encouraging to the pastors and staff. And even more than that, it enables us to move the mission forward. And so we kind of are at this place where not only can we fund all of those initiatives that we had, we're actually dreaming about some other initiatives that, that have kind of been on, on the uh, back burner for a while that we've really wanted to get started. Now we actually have resources to start thinking about how to move them forward. And so we'll have more details about those things for you in the weeks to come. But for today, I just wanted to say thank you for your generosity. It, it means an awful lot, and I hope you're encouraged, and we can start dreaming and moving forward together. So this morning, we are starting a new series looking at the parables of Jesus. And parables, kind of to put it simple, simply, uh, they're just very simple stories uh, that Jesus told to help us understand what life with God is like. Now, many people, when they think of the parables of Jesus, they think that they're something like Aesop's fables, you know, that, that have simple moral lessons. But parables, they're not these otherworldly fables uh, that take place in a fantasy realm filled with talking forest creatures. The parables of Jesus, they actually take place in our world. They're true to life stories. They're very believable. And they don't typically teach a simple moral, moral lesson. And this is one of the reasons that they're so challenging. The, the reason Jesus taught in parables was to reveal and sometimes even to conceal what the kingdom of God is like and what is required of us to experience that kingdom. And so if, if you go to these parables looking for just a simple moral lesson, often you'll be left scratching your head. You see, the parables are stories. And like all great stories, they require you to think. They don't give simplistic answers or abstract principles. Instead, they take the big questions of life and they pull them out of the abstract and they put them on a porch with a lovesick father or on a road between Jerusalem and Jericho. Like all great stories, the parables stick with you. You know, just like the chorus of a song that gets stuck in your head. If you actually sit with these stories, and this is why we're doing this series, is you'll read it, you'll hear it, you'll think about it, and then you'll continue to think about it for days, even for weeks. Sometimes these stories, they, can, they comfort Usually, though, <laughs> the parables convict, they provoke, and they incite. The parables are usually stories that disrupt. I mean, these are the stories that stirred up the religious establishment against Jesus. These are the stories that led them to plot his execution. And these are the stories that have embedded themselves into the fabric of our world over the last 2,000 years. There's probably no parable that's more famous than the one we're looking at this morning, the parable typically known as the Good Samaritan. Uh, the Good Samaritan, it's, it's almost kind of a household phrase. There have been countless hospitals and ministries named after this story. Rembrandt and Van Gogh painted depictions of it. And if, if that doesn't resonate with you, the last episode of Seinfeld uh, if anyone was a Seinfeld fan, 
was based upon a law named after the man in this parable. And so it's an incredibly popular, famous, well-known parable, but there are depths and layers to this parable that are often and easily overlooked. And so what I want to do this morning is just press in. We're going to walk through the text that we just heard, and then we're going to draw out a couple of lessons and what it means and what Jesus is getting at for us and telling this story. But to, to understand the parable of the Good Samaritan, you actually, you have to keep it in context and recognize that here in Luke 10, there's actually two stories. There's the story that's happening in reality between Jesus and this law expert, this guy who's, when we say law, we're not talking civil law, we're talking Bible law. This guy who's a Bible expert, that's one story. The other story is the story that Jesus tells, the story that comes from Jesus's imagination. And so we have to first look at the story before the story. And we're told in verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, to understand why this expert in the law wants to test Jesus, you have to remember that Jesus was kind of this nobody from this nowhere town who was a carpenter for 30 years. And then all of a sudden, one day he started teaching and healing people and he gained this massive following. So it'd be like today, uh, an auto mechanic, you know, who's, who's been working in a garage for years, all of a sudden starts walking around and preaching and teaching and healing and totally throwing the religious establishment upside down, the religious world upside down. That's what Jesus was doing. And so the religious establishment, they didn't really like that. They felt very threatened by Jesus. And they looked at him and they said, man, he's never been to seminary. He hasn't studied. He doesn't, he doesn't know like we know. And so they wanted kind of to expose him as a fraud. And so when this expert in the law, this Bible scholar comes to Jesus, what he's trying to do is put Jesus in his place, which ironically is what he, he does. But he asks him this question. And even though his motives are impure, the question's a good one because it's the question of life. I mean, this is the question, Right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, what must I do so that I can live forever? What must we do so that we can go to heaven and be with God when we die? There's not a more important question than that. And this is a question that people in our day think about. This was also a question that people in that day spent a lot of time thinking about and what this lawyer believed. I mean, he wasn't asking for information. Like, he already had an answer. And his answer, which was the same answer that the religious establishment of the day would give, which was probably the same answer that most of us would give, at least based upon how we were raised, the way you find eternal life, the lawyer would say, the way to heaven is by being a good person. It's by obeying all of God's laws. It's through your obedience and your holiness and your purity. Now, a lot of us were raised being taught that if you want to go to heaven, you got to be good. Good people go to heaven. Bad people go to hell. I think I've told you before when I was in preschool, I was told, like, if you eat your vegetables, you go to heaven. You don't eat your vegetables, you go to hell. Like, it's a, it's a common way to motivate people. 
And this goes back, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And this mindset, it was well-established, generally agreed upon in Jesus' day. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And while Jesus is very holy and devout, he spends his days hanging out with all these people who aren't holy and devout. He spends his days hanging out with all of these people who it doesn't seem like they're going to have a place because they're not very good. And to make matters worse, he doesn't just spend time with them. He tells them, you can enter into the kingdom of God today. You can receive the kingdom of God right now. And so the religious guys are looking at this, who does this man think he is? We need to shut him down. So they come to him and they want to put him to the test. They want Jesus, this question, he's trying to get Jesus to say something negative about the law. He wants Jesus to dishonor the law so that he might discredit Jesus before all the people. He's trying to trap him. It's never a good idea to try to trap Jesus because he turns the tables. And he asks the lawyer in response, He's, a, he's the law expert. He knows the Bible. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? You're the Bible scholar. How do you boil it all down? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Again, this guy, he's no joke. This is the, a really good answer. Like This was the generally agreed upon answer that's drawn from Scripture, that if you want to experience eternal life, you need to obey all of God's laws, but you can sum all of God's laws up and love God with all you have and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, even the Ten Commandments, they kind of break up the, the first kind of half or so of the Ten Commandments are all about loving God. The second half are all about Loving your neighbor. This is shorthand. And he's saying, this is the essence. And Jesus responds and he says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, the response of Jesus here is a brilliant response because on the one hand, he's absolutely upholding the law. He's saying, you're right. That's exactly what the law teaches. But on the other hand, With this answer, do this and you will live. He's trying to show the lawyer just how utterly impossible it is for any single one of us to do this fully and perfectly. So it's brilliant. He honors the law. He's like, yes, this is the rule to life. But he also says, do this and live. Like if you love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, all of your mind, if you love God with every ounce of who you are, you always put him first, you never neglect him, you never turn from him, and if you love your neighbor with the same urgency and intensity and power and care with which you love yourself, you do these two simple things, you will inherit eternal life. It's a brilliant 
response. And if the lawyer had actually really listened to Jesus, he would have realized the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life is the wrong question. The law is actually very clear about what you must do. A better question would be, where can I find mercy and grace for my failures and my sins? Is there any other way? Plan A ain't going to work for me, Jesus. Is there a plan B? But the lawyer wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Kind of humorously, he passes over the whole love God with every ounce of your being. You know, he's like, check. The only one I'm struggling with is I need to love my neighbor and I'm not quite sure who my neighbor is. So could you clarify? Because Jesus, if you can clarify who my neighbor is, then you can also clarify who my neighbor is not. And then that way, I'll be able to justify, make myself look right, declare myself right, by making sure that I care for all of the people who fall into the category of neighbor. And again, even though this guy's motives are impure, the question is a good one, is it not? I mean, if you're to love your neighbor with the same urgency, intensity, power, and care that you love yourself, it's not a bad question to say, well, who's my neighbor then? Who, who should I show this kind of love to? Now, the Jewish rabbis, they put a lot of thought into this question, and some said your neighbor was any Israelite natural born or a convert. Others said it was only natural born. Your neighbor was not, even if a, a foreigner or a Samaritan converted to Judaism, they weren't considered your neighbor. They didn't fall into that class. You might still be required to love them and care for them, but they're not in that special class of being neighbor. Some even drew the circle a little smaller, and they said that your neighbor was only good, morally upstanding Israelites. Immoral people, people with heretical views, they weren't neighbors, they were enemies. There was a, a rabbinical saying in that day that ruled that heretics and traitors be pushed into a ditch, not pulled out of one. You love your neighbor, you hate your enemy. The point is, everyone drew a line somewhere. And this lawyer is asking Jesus, Jesus, where do you draw the line? Who's the neighbor and who's the non-neighbor? And it's in response to this that Jesus tells him a story. And he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, as soon as Jesus says that phrase, everyone that would, would have been there with him would instantly be able to picture the scene. Jerusalem and Jericho were connected by a road that was about 17 miles and descended about 3,000 feet. So it was a steep, winding road, and it was notoriously dangerous because it was so steep and winding. There were all these places where thieves and robbers, they could hide, and they could also set up ambushes for travelers. This road was known as the bloody way. And that's exactly what happens here. Man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, 
leaving him half dead. Most certainly a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho would be a Jewish man. And so what we have here is probably a good upstanding Israelite Jew who just had a bit of misfortune and is now bleeding on the side of the road, half dead. Which means he's probably not moving very much. He's in about the worst position anyone could be. And Jesus says, a priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, the way Jesus phrases this, the priest just happened to be going down the road. The priest wasn't going there to help the man or not help the man. He was just going down the road. And as he's going down the road, he sees this man, bloody, beaten, and half dead on the side of the road. And he sees him, and he crosses to the other side of the road and continues on his journey. Now, this priest knew the law of God. He knew, gosh, what we read earlier, Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord acquire of thee uh, but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? This guy knew that whether or not the man half dead on the side of the road was a Jew or not, he deserved care and treatment. But the priest also knew that the law of God had very specific regulations about how you encounter dead bodies. And so if the man on the side of the road isn't half dead, but he's fully dead, and this priest gets within six feet of him, he will make himself ceremonially unclean. He'll be considered defiled. And he'll have to go back to Jerusalem, where he was just coming from. He'll have to go undergo the lengthy, costly, humiliating process of purification. I mean, he's the priest. He's supposed to be pure. It's not cool when the priest who does the purifying has to come and be purified, at least not in that day. This priest, he doesn't want to break the letter of the law, so he ignores the heart of the law. He doesn't love God and love others. Jesus goes on and he continues. He says, so to a Levite. Now, a Levite was also a religious professional, but wasn't as high-ranking as a priest, but he would know the same things a priest would know. He would know the command of God to love people in need, but he would also know that if he gets near a dead body, he's going to become ritually defiled. And he, like the priest, also recognized that they're on this dangerous road. And to stop on this bloody way to help is putting himself at risk. And so the Levite, just like the priest, both men who were morally obligated to help the man bleeding on the side of the road, they, they didn't fulfill their moral obligation and instead they crossed to the other side of the road. Now, a little context here. Jesus is telling these stories and in that day, just like in our day, people were a little cynical of religious professionals. They were cynical of the establishment. And usually when you tell a story in threes, it's like, well, it was this one who wasn't good. It was this one who wasn't good. And then it was this one who was good. And so everyone's expecting this third person to kind of be the hero of the story, but they're all expecting it to be this just kind of commoner just this ordinary Jew who upstages the religious professionals. Except for Jesus doesn't say, and then an ordinary Jewish man. Instead, Jesus says, a Samaritan. Now, 
there is no way to help you fully understand how much Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And even try, I, I read these modern day equivalents and none of them seem to work. The best I can tell you is that Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with one another. They wouldn't even set foot in each other's lands. Jews referred to the Samaritans on a regular basis as dogs, as half-breeds, as unclean. They believed some of the same stuff as Jews, but they ultimately were viewed as heretics. And so <laughs> for any Jewish person in this day, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. I mean, these, these two groups, there was a hatred, there was animosity that went back for centuries. And so when Jesus says, but a Samaritan, it's going to throw everyone for a little bit of a loop. And then he continues. He says, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, lying half dead on the side of the road. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins. That would be the equivalent of two days' wages, which could probably get you a, a month or even more stay in an inn in that day. And he gave these coins to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And I when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you might have. The Samaritan goes to extravagant lengths to care for this stranger. He shows this, like, absurd love, right? I mean, this, this is beyond just obligation. This is extravagant love. Like, obligation, you know, to just be a decent human being, you'd sit with the man until help arrived, and then you'd trust him to the professionals. This guy says, no, I'm going to put you on my donkey, and I'm going to walk you to an inn, and I'm going to make sure that not just that you're safe, but that you, you're healed. So Jesus finishes the story. <laughs> and remember, remember why he's telling the story. He's answering the question, the question of who is my neighbor. He's answering the question, what is at the heart of what God means when he says, love your neighbor? That's the reason he tells the story. You want to know what it means to love your neighbor? Here's the story. And so Jesus, in verse 36, he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law who had many friends who were priests and Levites but didn't have a single friend that was a Samaritan can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. And instead he just says, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And with this response, Jesus absolutely levels this man. I think if we're honest with this response, Jesus just leveled a whole lot of us. Because in this story, in this parable, Jesus, he answers the question, who is my neighbor? And the answer is this, anyone in your path that's in need. Who is your neighbor? Anyone in your path 
that's in need. But Jesus, he does more than just answer the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus actually kind of twists the question and he says, that's the wrong question. You shouldn't be asking, who is my neighbor? Instead, you should be asking, what does it mean for me to be a good neighbor? What kind of love does God want me to show to the people of this world? One pastor put it like this. He said, one cannot define one's neighbor. One can only be a neighbor. Neighbor isn't a concept to be debated or defined, but a flesh and blood person in the ditch waiting to be served. You can't define your neighbor in advance. You can only be a neighbor when the moment of mercy arrives. See, with this story, Jesus, he paints this picture of what a good neighbor looks like. He paints this picture of the kind of love that God requires of us. And he requires this of us because he created us for this. The law, the law given in the Old Testament was God's way to saying, this is the way to the good life. And in the law, he's saying, this is the way I want you to live. Now, for Christians, we know that, that this is the law, and so it doesn't totally apply to us, but we also know that, that what the law requires, God's grace provides. And so this picture here isn't something we can just write off. It's something we actually have to contemplate. In particular, when we think about the love displayed in the story, there are three things. These are the three things that that I want to close this sermon out with. This love that the Samaritan shows, number one, it comes because he sees. And the first thing that I want to hold before you is we need to be, to live in this kind of love, we need to be a people who see. You read it in the text. You read about the the priest who came and he saw the man A Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, the language is very deliberate. Both the priest and the Levite, when they came and saw this man lying half dead in the road, what they saw was a problem. (laughs) Like what they saw was an inconvenience. What they saw was, gosh, that looks really messy. And I just cleaned myself up at the temple. I don't want to get messy again. But the Samaritan, he came upon this man and he saw a man, a real flesh and blood person who needed help. And I would say this is a very important word for us, maybe more important now than it's ever been, at least since I've been a pastor. Because we live in a culture, in a day that a lot of cases, I don't even know what to do with how divided we are as a nation and the way people talk about each other and the way politicians talk about other people. We use all kinds of labels, rich, poor, Republican, Democrat, white, black, Latino, illegal, alien, undocumented worker, dreamer, and too often we use these labels as shorthand for writing people off. We use it as shorthand to say, you know what, that's not my neighbor. I'm not called to care for them. (laughs) Look at where they're from. 
Look at what their life looks like. That's not my responsibility. As if a person's race, background, or nationality overrules the fact that they're created in the image of God. I mean, the whole point of this parable is that we don't get to decide who is and who is not our neighbor. That's the point of this parable. You don't get to say, they're my neighbor and I'm going to care for them, but they are not. Today's, this weekend's Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, and he preached a phenomenal sermon on this text. And one of the best quotes in that sermon, he said this, too seldom do we see people in their true humanness. A spiritual myopia limits our vision to external accidents. We see men as Jews and Gentiles, Catholics or Protestants, Chinese or American, African Americans or whites. We fail to think of them as fellow human beings made from the same basic stuff as we, molded in the same divine image. The priest and the Levite saw only a bleeding body, not a human being like themselves. But the Good Samaritan will always remind us to remove the cataracts of provincialism from our spiritual eyes and see men as men. If the Samaritan had considered the wounded man as a Jew first, he would not have stopped, for the Jews and Samaritans had no dealings. But he saw him as a human being first. In this parable... Jesus is saying, the ideal I want you to live into, this ideal of love, you got to see people, all people, regardless of circumstances, class, race, nationality, you've got to see them as people created in the image of God who have infinite worth and value. To fulfill the law of love, you have to learn to see past the labels to the person God created. People who see. Number two, we got to be a people who act. You know, the priest and the Levite, they cross to the other side of the road. And we don't know why. I gave you some reasons why they potentially did. They were afraid. They were, didn't want to get hurt. Maybe they didn't want to be richly defiled. Or maybe they were just cold-blooded. We don't know. And ultimately, that's the way life goes, right? Maybe they had great intentions of coming back, but they never did. Maybe they never had those intentions. All we know is they saw a man in need. They didn't want to get involved because it would be costly. It would be dangerous. It would be complicated. And so they crossed to the other side of the road. The Samaritan, on the other hand, he rolls up his sleeve and he steps in. He bandages the wounds. Think about that. He doesn't just say, you're bleeding. Let me go get help. He rolls up his sleeves and gets this man's blood. Jews and Samaritans would never touch each other. And he's got his hands on the wounds. And he's pouring out his own oil and wine to disinfect the wound. He puts his safety on the line. He puts his schedule on hold. Gives up a day or two of his life to be a good neighbor to this man. He sacrifices the equivalent of two days' wages and, and he does this with innkeepers, and innkeepers were known to not be very reliable people. And so he goes to this innkeeper, and he says, hey, I need you to take care of this guy. If there's any extra expenses, I'll come back and cover them. And the innkeeper's thinking, of course, there's going to be some extra expenses. But he goes to this extravagant length. He acts. 
He doesn't just see, he acts. He says, I'm going to step in. The Samaritan moves toward the need, not away from it. And he moves toward the need, even knowing it's going to be costly. And to be a person of love, it means we have to be a people who move towards need and not away from it. You know, you wouldn't know it by listening to a lot of popular Christian voices, but the Bible repeatedly and consistently calls us to love those in need. One of the overarching themes and threads in the Bible, if you were going to read it cover to cover, is love the poor. It's all throughout the Old Testament, and it's all throughout the New Testament. We can't be a people who look at those in need and say, that's not my responsibility. We don't have the freedom to look at those who are suffering and say, I don't think I need to care for them. And I think the evangelical church, it's, been, it's become so enmeshed with American politics that, that we politicize that calling, you know? Like, it's not just, hey, we're called to love the poor instantly. And some of you right now, you can feel it rising because that's the culture we live in. We politicize the command. Well, that's the government's job. No, it's not the government's job. All I know is the Bible says we're called to love the poor. That's what I know. And when you politicize it, you diminish the call. You're putting your politics. When you run Jesus's commands through the filter of your politics, something has gone wonky in your life. Like the command is to love the poor. People raise objections. Well, the world was different back then. They didn't pay taxes like we did. Okay, 1 John 3, 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. It's the mic drop. You can't say, well, we, government, government, no, it doesn't matter. Like to, to live into the life of love that God has called us to, we're called to see people, all people, as created in the image of God, number one. Number two, we're called to move towards need, not away from need. We're going to be a people who see, a people who act, and lastly, a people who feel. And some of you are like, I feel, I feel guilty right now. Anyone here feel guilty? Like if you're feeling guilty about your lack of concern for the poor, your lack of generosity or involvement uh, in meeting people's needs, if you're feeling really guilty right now, stop. Like stop feeling guilty. Jesus, he's not trying to make this lawyer feel guilty I mean, at least not in the sense, he's not trying to tell this lawyer, you're miserable at caring for the poor. That's not the context. Jesus doesn't tell this story just to make us feel guilty. And I would say, if you understand this story, and this is where a lot of people, they go wrong here. The calling is very clear. But if you understand this 
parable as nothing more than a call to deeper and more extensive obligation and morality, then you're never going to be able to live into the kind of love this parable calls you to. And that's kind of complicated. Let me say that again. If you understand this parable as nothing more than, than a call to a deeper obligation and a deeper kind of morality, you're never actually going to live into this kind of love. If all this does for you is make you say, man, I need to care more and I don't care enough. I feel miserable. Out of this misery, I'm going to go do some good things. That will get you, I don't know, about a week down the road. And then you'll forget or something else will come up. That, that won't take you where Jesus wants you to go and it won't make you the kind of person that Jesus wants you to become. Because he wants you to become a person that loves like this for the long haul. You ever wondered why Jesus includes this priest and Levite? Like it's not just because he wants to take a dig at the religious establishment. I think the reason Jesus includes this priest and Levite is because they actually had a moral obligation to help the man and they didn't. And so in showing them, bringing them into the story, he's showing, hey, moral obligation, it's not gonna get you very far. Like, when all's well, you might obey the morals, but when life gets hard, just the sense of obligation, it's not going to get you where you need to go. The Samaritan, unlike the priest and Levite, he had no obligation. He didn't have a legal obligation. You could say he had a moral obligation, but that certainly would never have been expected for a Samaritan to drop what he was doing and help a Jewish man on the side of the road. He had no obligation Nobody expected him to stop. So the question is, why did he stop? Like what differentiated the Samaritan who had no obligation from the priest and the Levite who did have obligation? Verse 33, a Samaritan, we already read it. As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. That, that phrase, took pity, it could also be translated as he had compassion on him. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's translated as his heart went out to him. When the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they want to let us into the emotional life of Jesus and tell us not just what Jesus was doing, but, but what he was feeling, they use this same word more than any other word to describe Jesus' emotional life. And so a couple of examples, I could give you a dozen or more, but Matthew 20, these two blind men show up to Jesus and they're pleading with Jesus to be healed and they're begging and the crowd's like, hey, Jesus is teaching, stop talking. And so they just start getting louder and they're screaming at the top of their lungs, Jesus, please heal us. And the crowd starts to get very angry with them and it turns into this whole scene. And then in Matthew 20, 34, we're told that moved with compassion, it's the same phrase, Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Or Luke 9, Jesus comes to this town of Nain and he sees a funeral procession. And what's going on is a widow is burying her only son and her only hope. And Jesus sees this widow and we're told, verse 13 of Luke 7 actually, when the Lord saw her, 
when the Lord saw the widow grieving her only son, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. His heart went out. It's the same phrase. There's one other place, you know, that I think is pertinent to this. Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. When the father is waiting on the porch and he sees his son, we're told his heart went out to him. He had compassion. He took pity. The Samaritan, the reason he did what he did is because he was moved with the love of Christ. And here's the meaning of it all. The only way we'll ever become the types of people who love like this for the long haul, it's not by just feeling guilty and laying out more obligation. The way you love like this for the long haul is when your heart has been changed. And when your heart, instead of protecting you and and all the things that you love, whether it's good or bad, your heart instead starts to go out to people. Your heart doesn't terminate on itself. It goes out. And I would say the only way that kind of thing happens is when you realize that you and I and all of us, we were the ones bloody and beaten, not half dead, fully dead on the side of the road. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. And God didn't cross to the other side of the road and he didn't say to hell with them. Instead, he crossed the infinite distance between heaven and earth. And he didn't just pour out some oil and wine, he poured out his blood and his body was shed. His heart went out to us when we were utterly helpless, not just so that we could be brought to safety, but so that we could be healed. And he didn't do it out of obligation, he did it out of compassion. And I would say it's only when you see Jesus who showed this unreasonable compassion this extravagant, limitless love to you, it's only as that truth's real to you that you'll be able to walk in this kind of love to the world around us. And I think when you boil it all down, what's happening in the American church, what's happening in this culture, you have a whole lot of people who know something about the Bible and something about moral obligation, but they don't, they don't know anything about being dead on the side of the road and being rescued. And because of that, this whole thought of of pouring your heart out of your heart, going out to people, that just seems strange, maybe even naive and foolish. But Jesus shows us it's the way to life. As we come to the Lord's table, as we remember all that Jesus did for us, of his body being broken for us, his blood being shed on our behalf, this table is a place where we celebrate God's grace that even when we fail, God's grace is sufficient. It's more than sufficient. It's more than enough. And so we can come, we can confess sins and we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear God and anger smiting us. It's also a place where we can encounter and be reminded once again, it's, it's almost a dramatic act that Jesus gave us to remind us of the compassion that he's shown to us. Because when you come forward and you tear off the bread and you get ready to dip it in the wine or the juice, Someone's going to tell you, this is the body of Christ broken for you. 
This is the blood of Christ poured out for you. This is an opportunity for us to once again be reminded that God's heart went out to us, and because his heart went out to us, our heart must go out to the people created in his image. Let me pray.